All right. Now we're going to look at the second book of the Fairy Queen, Canto 12. So this is the final canto of book two. Book one uh, concerned holiness with the Red Cross Knight. Book two is all about temperance, and Sir Guyon is the Knight of Temperance. In uh, book one, the Red Cross Knight's companion was Una, the, the lady who represents truth. In book two, Sir Guyon's companion is the Palmer, and he represents reason. So where truth keeps uh, uh, holiness on track, it's reason that keeps temperance on track. Again, all of these kind of allegorical figures are, are making a kind of a theological argument. So in this final this final section of uh, book two, Guyon confronts the Bower of Bliss. And let's look at how it's described and what it represents here. Uh, the section in the, in the textbook starts with stanza 42. Uh, Thence passing forth, they shortly do arrive, whereas the bower of bliss was situate, a place picked out by choice of best alive that nature's work by art can imitate, in which whatever in this worldly state is sweet and pleasing unto living sense, or that may daintiest fantasy argate, was poured forth, with plentiful dispense, and made there to abound with lavish affluence. So, this is a, it's important that this is not a purely natural place. This is a place where nature's work is imitated. This is a, a simulation world. It's an artful imitation of things. It's taking those dainty fantasies and pouring them forth with plentiful dispense, making extra heaping uh, uh, mounds of them. Uh, so this isn't just natural. This is something that has been uh, constructed. Uh, goodly it was enclosed round about, as well there entered guests to keep within, as those unruly beasts to hold without. Yet was the fence thereof but weak and thin, not feared their force that fortilage to win, but wisdom's power and temperance might, by which the mightiest things enforced been, and eke the gate was wrought of substance light, rather for pleasure than for battery or fight. So here again, there's a, the appearance that there's this, this mighty wall and gate around it, but it's all for show. It's not real. So the very first thing we learn about the Bower of Bliss is that it isn't real. Um, goes on, stanza 44. It framed was of precious ivory that seemed a work of admirable wit, and therein all the famous history of Jason and Medea was you writ. So Jason and Medea are a, this is a mythological allusion, uh, Jason won the Golden Fleece, and he won it with the help of Medea, 
who was the, the daughter of the king of that country, and also a sorceress. Uh, so she used her magic to help him, and he took her with him when he, he fled, and they married, and it's a very happy part of the story. The rest of the story is that after they're married and they have children, Jason has a wandering eye, and he has an affair with another woman, and Medea revenges herself on him. Uh, now, why of all of the things that it could talk about, does it talk about this story? I think it's because it's showing that the way that uh, love can lead you astray. Jason and Medea started off as this wonderful couple, but it turned out that their story ended in tragedy. Uh, and I th- again, it, it's showing you things are not what they appear at first in the um, in the bower of bliss. Now, look at the first person or figure that we see here uh, at the at the opening the the porch of the bower of bliss. Uh, there sat in stanza forty six a comely personage of stature tall and semblance pleasing more than natural that travelers to him seemed to entice. His looser garment to the ground did fall, and flew about his heels in wanton wise, not fit for speedy pace or manly exercise. All right, so this tall, handsome figure, and notice it's more pleasing, more handsome than is natural. Again, the, the beauty of, of the Bower of Bliss is unnatural. And again, it's all for show. It's not practical. The, the garments he wears these kind of loose, flowing robes. You can't, you know, you can't jog in that. You can't do any manly exercise. Um, he's. Uh, it's all for show. Uh, they in that place, him genius did call. Now, a, a genius uh, means the kind of the the presiding spirit of a place. It's come to mean somebody who's really smart, but that's not what the primary meaning was for uh, Spencer's time. Uh, not, that celest- not that celestial power to whom the care of life and generation, generation of all that lives pertains in charge particular, who wondrous things concerning our welfare and strange phantoms doth let us oft foresee and oft of secret ill bids us beware. That is our self, whom, though we do not see, yet doth in him self it well perceived to be. So he's distinguishing. This is not the idea that this other kind of genius, this is not uh, uh, this celestial power. This is something different. Um, This one, you know, quite the contrary, is the foe of life stanza 48, that good invades to all, that seemeth, that secretly doth us procure to fall through guileful semblance which he makes us see. He of this garden had the govern all, and pleasure's porter was devised to be, holding a staff in hand for more formality. So he's telling us this is this is a bad guy. He is trying to trick us, trying to trap us, trying to make us fall. And you see what Sir Gion does to him in stanza 49. He overthrew his bowl disdainfully and broke his staff with which he uh, charmed semblance sly. So 
Gaian, if if genius the of the bar of uh, bower of bliss is uh, a figure of temptation well Gaian destroys him he does he throws his bowl down he breaks his staff in two um and then he comes in and sees the bower of bliss a large and spacious plain on every side strode with pleasants whose fair grassy ground mantled with green and goodly uh, beautified with all the ornaments of flora's pride were with her mother art as half in scorn of niggard nature like a pompous bride did deck her and too lavishly adorn so again this is a, a scene of uh, this large spacious plain but it's not natural. It's it's saying, well, nature isn't good enough. We're going to over. Nature is too stingy. We're going to use art to improve on nature, uh, like a pompous bride, and it, it's too lavishly adorned. And the the weather is unnaturally perfect. Nor scorching heat, nor cold and temperate to afflict the creatures wherein which therein did dwell, but the mild air with season moderate gently attempered and disposed so well that still it breathed forth sweet spirit and wholesome smell so this is not like nature that has seasons which have extremes you know it gets very cold in winter it gets hot in summer no everything is maintained in a kind of a a perfect medium uh, which is pleasant but it's unnatural and Look at Guyon's reaction, uh, stanza 43. Much wondered Guyon at the fair aspect of that sweet place, yet suffered no delight to sink into his sense, nor mind effect, but passed forth and looked still forward right, brindling his will and mastering his might. So Guyon, again, Guyon is temperance, and this might be a place that he would, you know, Temperance is going to lose. Oh, we, we want to indulge in this. No, Gein's not going to indulge. He sees it, he wonders at it, but he's not allowing it to, uh, as he says, sink into his sense. He's not, he, he's not letting it get to him. And we get to the next kind of beautiful place, another, another porch here, uh, where he sees this... Uh, Stanza 55, under that porch, a comely dame did rest, clad in fair weeds, but foul disordered, and garments loose that seemed unmeet for womanhead. So you can see this is kind of a parallel with Genius, the, the guardian of, of the Bower of Bliss. She has the same kind of loose, uh, inappropriate clothing and his was not for manly exercise. Hers seems unmeet for womanhood. And like the genius, she's holding a cup. In her left hand, a cup of gold she held. And with her right, the riper fruit did reach, whose sappy liquor that with fullness swelled into her cup she scrooged with dainty breech of her fine fingers without foul impeach that so fair wine press made the wine more sweet thereof she used to give to drink to each whom passing by she happened to meet and it was her guise all strangers goodly so to greet so she's got this golden cup and she's squeezing the the juice the fruit uh, into into the cup 
Um, so she, to Guyon, offered it to taste. She offers everyone this. She's offering it to Guyon, who, taking it out of her tender hand, uh, the cup to ground did violently cast that all his pieces, all in pieces it was broken fond, and with the liquor stained all the land, whereat excess exceedingly was wroth, yet not the same amend, no, yet withstand, but suffered him to pass all where she loth, who not regarding her displeasure forward goeth. So notice, that it's, again, this is parallel with genius. There's this figure, this allegorical figure of, of pleasure, of bliss, of sensual indulgence. Um, and notice that temperance has a violent reaction in both cases. He breaks the staff. He breaks the cup. Um, and it, it paradoxically, uh, temperance's reaction to this is very intemperate. But you know, Spencer is saying something about this. There has to be a strong reaction against this. It's it's too easy to just kind of ease into it and give into it, or even even ignoring it is not what he what he's supposed to do. He needs to get rid of it. And look in these next two stanzas. The description here: there, the most dainty paradise on ground itself doth offer to his sober eye, and he is sober-eyed about all this in which all pleasures plenteously abound, and none does other happiness envy. The painted flowers, the trees upshooting high, the dales for shade, the hills for breathing space, the trembling groves, the crystal running by, and that which all fair works doth most grace, the art which all that wrought appeared in no place. So, He's reminding us this is all art, this is all constructed, this isn't real, but you can't tell. It looks real. There's no uh, uh, no way to tell that this isn't real, uh, which makes it more dangerous. One would have thought, so cunningly, the rude and scorned parts were mingled with the fine, that nature had for wantonness ensued art, and that art at nature did repine, so striving each the other to undermine, each did the other's work more beautify, so differing both in while in wiles agree in fine, so all agreed through sweet diversity, this garden to adorn with all variety. So the the natural parts of it and the artificial parts of it kind of complement each other and create and you know if you took that stanza out of context, it would seem that it was uh, you know, praising it. Uh, and in other circumstances, it might be. But this is telling us something that is dangerous about this place. It looks, it looks beautiful, but we have to keep remembering it's not real. It's constructed. It's a, it's a fiction. Uh, it's, a, it's a creation. It's not the real thing. And there we see in the center is a fountain um, that uh, most goodly yet with curious imagery was overwrought and shapes of naked boys of which some seemed with lively jollity to fly about playing their wanton toys whilst others did themselves embay in liquid joys. 
So again, this is very kind of sensuous, uh, the naked boys playing. Uh, it was, it's a fountain. We've seen that water is often a, a symbol of temptation in the fairy queen. Um, he says, and overall, a, p- a purest gold was spread, a trail of ivy in his natural hue, for the rich metal was so colored that white, who did not well advise it view, would surely deem it to be ivory true. Uh, to be ivy true. So it looks like it's an I- a bre- a ivy plant, but it's not. It's something that's it's it's what uh, artists call trompe l'oeil. Uh, it looks real, but it's just an illusion. And if you don't look carefully, you'll be taken in by it. And then in stanza, starting in stanza 63, uh, Guyan sees two naked damsels he therein espied, which therein bathing, seemed to contend and wrestle wantonly, ne cared to hide their dainty parts from view of any which them eyed. So you've got these two naked women kind of uh, wrestling in the water and with no shame. You can see all of their dainty parts. Sometimes the one would lift the other quite above the waters, and then down again her plong as overmastered by might, where both a while would cover it remain, and each the other from to rise restrain, the whiles their snowy limbs as through a veil, so through the crystal waves appeared plain. Then suddenly both would themselves unheal and the amorous sweet spoils to greedy eyes reveal. So they're kind of playing peekaboo. They go under the water and you can kind of see their limbs thrashing around and they jump back up and you can see them full on. And um, this is, you know, in, in case you hadn't noticed, this is very erotically charged. This is, you know, a, a kind of a, a fantasy, sex dream kind of thing. Uh, these two beautiful damsels frolicking in the water. Um, and again, look at uh, Guyan's reaction. Whom such, when Guyan, this is stanza 65, whom such, when Guyan saw, he drew him near and somewhat gan relent his earnest pace, his stubborn breast gan secret pleasance to embrace. Okay, so this is beginning to get to him. Temperance has been very, very steadfast up to now, but the, the two frolicking naked damsels are, are lowering his resistance. The wanton maidens, him espying, stood gazing a while at his unwanted guise. Then... The, the one, herself low ducked in the flood, abashed that her a stranger did avise, but the other, rather higher, did arise, and her two lily paps aloft displayed, and all that might his melting heart entice to her delights, she unto him berayed, the rest hid underneath him more desirous made." So one of them is playing coy and ducks under the water. The other one jumps up out of the water and displays her the, the two lily paps. That's her breasts. So she's jumping up and putting her chest in his face 
to entice him. And it says the, the, the parts he couldn't see under the water, just the fact that they were hidden made them even more desirous. With that, the other likewise up arose, and her fair locks, which formerly were bound up in one knot, she lower down did loose. With flowing long and thick, her cloth, uh, her clothed around, and the ivory in golden mantle uh, gowned, so that fair spectacle from him was reft. Yet that which reft it, no less fair, was found. So hidden locks and waves from lookers theft, naught but her lovely face she for his looking left. So now the one who'd been under the water, she jumps up and she had her hair up. She takes it down and has this long golden hair and the golden hair covers her nakedness, but it's just as sensual and uh, inviting to him as her naked body. And with all she laughed and she blushed with all that blushing to her laughter gave more grace and laughter to her blushing as did fall. Now, when they spied the knight to slack his pace, them to behold, and in his sparkling face the secret signs of kindled lust appear, their wanted merriments they did increase, and to him beckoned to approach more near, and showed him many sights that courage could not rear. So they see that he's weakening, right? He's kind of slowing down and taking a look. So they get even more uh, uh, amorous towards him, uh, trying to entice him. But just as we saw that Una stepped in at the moment when despair was about to tempt the Red Cross Knight to suicide, well, the Palmer reason steps in here at this moment. He he much rebuked those wandering eyes of his, and counseled well, him forward thence did draw. Now are they come nigh to the bower of bliss, of her fond favorites so named amiss, when thus the palmer, Now, sir, well advise, for here the end of all our travel is. Here one's Acrasia, whom we must surprise, else she will slip away, and all our drift despise. So he's, the Palmer is keeping him on track. He said, look, we, we're here to find Acrasia, the, the witch, and we have to take her. If we, if we don't stay on course, she's going to slip away from us again. And soon they heard a most melodious sound of all that mot delight a dainty ear. So now, not just the kind of the, we've had the visual uh, uh, sensuality, now we have uh, the sounds as well. For all that pleasing is to living ear was there consorted in one harmony. Birds, voices, instruments, winds, waters, all agree. So now the very sounds are becoming kind of a sensual uh, lure for uh, Sir Guyon. And we get um, in 72, stanza 72, our look at Acrasia in the very center of the Bower of Bliss. There, whence that music seemed heard to be, was the fair witch herself, now solacing with a new lover, whom through sorcery and witchcraft she from far did thither bring. There she had him now, 
laid a-slumbering in secret shade after long wanton joys, whilst round about them pleasantly did sing many fair ladies and lascivious boys that never mixed their song with light licentious that ever mixed their song with light licentious toys. So Acrasia is there with a new lover who she's bewitched and enchanted to come to her. Says, and all that while, right over him, she hung, over her lover, she hung, with her false eyes fast fixed in his sight, and seeking medicine whence she was strong, of greedy, uh, depasturing de- delight. And oft inclining down with kisses light, for fear of waking him, his lips bedewed, and through his humid eye did suck his sprite, quite molten into lust and pleasure lewd. Therewith she sighed soft, as if his case she rude. So he's asleep there, and she's kind of delicately not quite kissing him, but she's also, I mean, this is really kind of weird. It says she sucks his spirit out through his eyes. So she's like a kind of a vampire figure here. She's sucking the life out of him, the spirit out of him. And very significantly, she does it through the eyes, all the visual pleasure that the Bower Bliss has and that she has. Uh, it's a way of sucking his spirit out. Uh, she's, um, you know, again, draining the, the spirit out of him, the life out of him. The whiles someone did chant this lovely lay. So while this is all going on, there's this song that's being sung. And this is a kind of a, uh, well, it's a, it's a kind of a carpe diem song, Seize the Day. Ah, see who so fair thing dost feign to see, in springtime flower the image of thy day. Ah, see the virgin rose, how sweetly she doth first peep forth with bashful modesty, that fairer seems the less ye see her may. Lo, see soon after how more bold and free her buried bosom she doth broad display. Lo, see soon after how she fades and falls away. Notice the repetition there of see, 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 see. And remember that the Acrasia is sucking his spirits out of his eyes. And these things that he sees, uh, he sees the, the rose is, is bashful and beautiful, and but its, its beauty fades. So passeth in the passing of a day a mortal life, the leaf, the bud, the flower, no more doth flourish after first decay. The, that erst was sought to deck both bed and bower of many a lady and many a paramour. Gather therefore the rose whilst yet is prime, for soon comes age that will her pride deflower. Gather the rose of love whilst yet is time, whilst loving thou mayest loved be with equal crime. Now this is the standard carpe diem kind of poem argument. The, it, just as the rose blooms briefly and then fades, so your youth and beauty does. So use it while you've got it. You know, seize the day. 
Um, but notice that it ends with that word crime. Whilst loving thou mayest loved be with equal crime. Uh, it's even, even this tempting verse is acknowledging that there's something wrong with this, that it's, it's a crime. Uh, it's, it's not a, a natural thing. And I think, again, if you took that out of context, I just read that as a carpe diem poem without, without it being in this dangerous power of bliss. I think you would, you wouldn't see anything dark or sinister about it. But the context, I think, does make it so. And notice that the, our, our heroes are unmoved by it. In stanza 76, the constant pair heard all that he did say, the, the singer of the Carpe Diem song, yet swarved not, but kept their forward way through many covert groves and thickets close, in which they creeping did at last display that wanton lady with her lover loose, whose sleepy head she in her lap did soft dispose. Upon a bed of roses she was laid, as faint through heat or dight to pleasant sin, and was arrayed, or rather, disarrayed, all in a veil of silk and silver thin, that hid no whit her alabaster skin, but rather showed more white, it more, if more might be, more subtle web arachne cannot spin, nor the fine nets which oft we woven see of scorched dew do not in, in the air more lightly flee. Here again, notice all of the kind of very sensual, tempting imagery. He's literally on a bed of roses. And the clothing that she wears, it's so thin, it leaves nothing to the imagination. It actually enhances the, you know, shows you more than if she were just naked. It makes her even more enticing. It, didn't, it doesn't hide her alabaster skin. Uh, it makes her just look even more white. Uh, and it's compared to fine nets. Again, this is a net that is trapping or can trap uh, somebody unwary. And we see her snowy breast was bare to ready spoil of hungry eyes. So she's her bare breasts are there for everyone to see, which uh, not therewith befiled, yet through languor of her late sweet toil, few drops, more clear than nectar, forth, forth distilled, that like pure orient pearls adown it trilled, and her fair eyes, sweet smiling in delight, moistened their fiery beams, with which she thrilled frail hearts. It quenched not, like starry light, which sparkling on the silent waves doth seem more bright. So even the, the sweat on her body are like pearls. Uh, there's um, this, they're like the sparkling stars. And the young man who's sleeping there, the young man is... Um, her victim. They see him, his nobility, so foul deface. But he's a, you know, he's, he's a young man. You see, on his tender lips, the downy hair 
did now but freshly spring and silken blossom silken blossoms bear so he's just beginning to be old enough to uh, have facial hair and he's abandoned his armor his warlike arms were hung upon a tree um, no no for honor carried he no no aught that did to his advancement tend but in lewd loves and wasteful luxury his days his goods his body he did spend o horrible enchantment that him did uh, that him so did blend or blind now this is a in we didn't read this part but when um red cross knight is defeated by the the giant of pride he has set his arms aside you know to lie down and rest with duessa so this is kind of an echo of that he's this young man has given up his is he's defenseless he's given up his armor he has yielded completely to temptation unlike sir Gion. now in stanza 81 we see that sir Gion and the palmer that sudden forth they on them that is uh acrasia and this young man she's seduced uh they on them rushed and threw a subtle net which only for the same the skillful palmer palmer formerly did frame so this is a net that the palmer uh, you know reason has made to capture acrasia um it says the fair enchantress so unawares oppressed tried all her arts and all her slights thence out to rest and eke her lover strove but all in vain for that same net so cunningly was wound that neither guile nor force might it distrain they took them both and both them strongly bound in captive bands which there they ready found but her in chains of adamant he tied for nothing else might keep her safe and sound but verdant that's the young man so he hight uh, he soon untied and counsel sage in, ste- in steed thereof to him applied all right so they capture them both they let verdant go uh, though they're giving him sage counsel you know don't let this happen to you again young man but they put her in chains of adamant adamant is the uh the, the hardest substance there is kind of a mythical substance um but all those pleasant bowers and palace brave Gion broke down with rigor pitiless no aught their goodly workmanship might save them from the tempest of his wrathfulness but that their bliss he turned to balefulness their groves he felled their gardens did deface their arbors spoil their cabinets suppress their bank banquet house burn their building race and all the fairest late now made the foulest place so Gion just completely destroys this place he tears everything down um and again think about the the, the irony or the, the paradox really that this is the night of temperance and yet this seems a very extreme reaction but this is what he has to do to resist this temptation 
And Spencer makes, I think, <laughs> excuse me, Spencer makes the temptation very vivid and very real. This is some of the most uh, sensuous, sensual poetry in the English Renaissance. Uh, this is a, a, in the same way I think he makes the, the case for despair uh, very powerful, kind of unsettling in a way. Um, because if you're going to talk about overcoming temptations, the temptations have to have a reality to them. And in the Fairy Queen, they really do. I mean, he, he gives the full force to these things that the knights have to overcome. Now, the last kind of incident in these, these last few stanzas, uh, we see that the other victims of Acrasia have been turned into animals. Uh, the Palmer says, stanza 85, These seeming beasts are men indeed, whom this enchantress hath transformed thus, whilom her lovers, which her lusts did feed, now turned into figures hideous, according to their minds like monstrous. So sad end, quoth he, of life intemperate, and mournful mead of joys delicious. But Palmer, if it might be, uh, if it might be so a great, let them return it be unto their former state. So, the again the symbolic allegorical end of giving in to uh, sensual pleasures in the bower of bliss, a bower of bliss, is to become an animal. You give in to animal sensuality, and you become an animal. Um, straightway, he with his virtuous staff, that is the, the palmer uh, staff, them struck, and straight of beasts they comely men became. And being men, they did unmanly look, and stared ghastly, some for inward shame, and some for wrath, to see their captive dame. So now notice, there's a double reaction. Some of them are ashamed of what they've done, but some of them are mad that he's captured Acrasia. But one above the rest in special, that had an hog been late, height grill by name, repined greatly, and did him miscall, that hath from hoggish form him brought to natural. So one of them, Grill, was had been turned into a, a hog. Now he's turned back into a man, and he's upset. He he didn't doesn't like what they've done. Said Guyan, see the mind of beastly man that hath so soon forgot the excellence of his creation, when he life began, that now he chooseth with vile difference to be a beast and lack intelligence. To whom the palmer thus. The dunghill kind delights in filth and foul incontinence. Let Grill be Grill and have his hoggish mind, but let us hence depart, whilst weather serve and wind. So the last noted insult is, is one of these victims of Acrasia who he wants to go back. Uh, they've rescued him, but he didn't. He didn't want to be rescued. He liked it in the Bower of Bliss. He liked the naked damsels and all of that. Um, and they're saying, "Well, you know, you can't save some people. Some people want to kind of give in purely to their animal lusts." 
Um, now, again, I think one of the things that Spencer does so expertly is to uh, give a real dramatic force to the these abstract ideas and temptations he's talking about. Uh, so Guyon's reaction to the Bower of Bliss uh, makes sense if you remember how uh, how tempting it was for him, how close he came to uh, to falling. Now another aspect that Spencer does is that he sets up a lot of parallels throughout the Fairy Queen, and the next thing we're going to read is from Book Three of the Fairy Queen. This is the book about uh, the the Knight Britomart, and she, uh, yes, she, uh, is the Knight of Chastity. And for next time, uh, you need to read the uh, Book Three, Canto Six, and this is the description of the Garden of Adonis. Uh, Adonis was the uh, mortal lover of Venus in classical mythology. And I want you to think about the Garden of Adonis in comparison and contrast with the Bower of Bliss. Uh, Spencer is presenting positive and negative images here. Uh, there's the... Uh, You'll see that the idea of of love and sensuality is in the Garden of Adonis, but it has a very different context and a very different meaning. So think about that. Think about how, why the the you know on, on the simplest level, why is the Garden of Adonis a good place and the Bower of Bliss a bad place? And think particularly about specific parallels between them. Where do they where are they similar and where do they diverge? Where do they contrast? So we'll be looking at that for next time. Uh, again, you can address questions to Dr. Mark Womack at gmail.com. I thank you for attention for your attention and I will speak to you next time.